One of the conventional sayings, by the way, when societies go through great crises, whether it's a, a war in the United States, the attack on 9-11 and so forth, is the phrase, life will never be the same. You hear that over and over again. And then it turns out that life is almost always back to the same. I think in the case of COVID, one thing about COVID is the shutdown related to COVID has provided a sort of great experiment for business and government and individuals to some extent with respect to long distance interactions. You're listening to Data Point, stories behind the scenes of the Israeli economy. Data Point, a podcast by the Taub Center. I'm Ido Kainan, and today I'll be talking to Professor Claude Fisher, a sociologist at the University of California, Berkeley, Professor Alex Weinrib, Research Director at the Taub Center, and Daniel Cantor, a young woman who co-founded, almost by accident, an organization with thousands of volunteers that provided tens of thousands of food packages during the outbreak of the coronavirus in Israel. Today, we will discuss the ways COVID-19 is changing and will continue to change our everyday lives. I do think if you read the popular media these days, these days being the last half century, I would say, um, a lot of it has this sort of angst and wistfulness about, oh, when life was simpler and people just stayed in place, and wouldn't it be nice to have that kind of comfort today? Well, for most people in that earlier day, they did not have that comfort. I'll give you another way of thinking about it. One of the interesting things, if you travel around in in places like New England, I'm sure this is true in places in Western Europe, one sees a lot of these very stately old homes, beautiful homes. Some of them have been kept up well, and they go back to the 19th century. Some go back to the 18th century, and the, the, the persistence of these homes gives a sense that why, my goodness, there was persistence in lifestyle. People lived generation after generation in these houses. And what a stable life it must have been. So this is a very interesting issue, which is also, I think, a shared nostalgia for the past. This is Professor Claude Fisher, one of the keynote speakers in the 2021 Taub Center Herbert M. Singer International Policy Conference. Professor Fisher specializes in the study of urban life, inequality, and social networks. During the conference, He gave us a broader international look at the effects of COVID-19. What can you tell us about the way COVID has changed daily life in the U.S.? I'm going to suggest that there'll be some change, but not much. We'll have lasting effects in the sense that there's new options open. What seems to be clear is that we're moving towards more hybrid models than we used to. This is Professor Alex Weinrib, Research Director at the Taub Center. Professionally, I have... You know, just because of the easy availability of new methods to contact people, increasingly, like I have meetings on Zoom, I don't have to go to international meetings. I can just log in. Right now, I'm teaching at the University of Texas th- through Zoom. So personally and professionally, what it has enabled me to do is basically separate the need to be elsewhere while doing things in those places. The academy, the universities have continued to do all sorts of intellectual events, but at a distance at Zoom. And that turned out to be a pretty interesting experience. I could attend a seminar that was being given 3,000 miles away on the other side of the country. And so we've made some discoveries. I mean, it's been a painful one in terms of social restrictions, but we've had this, uh, you might say, the interesting experiment with technology 
which has perhaps opened up yet another door for multiplying personal interactions. Borders became more meaningful in terms of where you could physically go. But borders have become less meaningful in terms of where you can functionally operate in terms of doing tasks. And I think that is a transformation which is going to affect lots of people professionally. Used to be for decades, one would read in the American business press that the day is coming when everybody will work from home. And the big work from home movement was predicted over and over, and it never really developed. There are always people who did work from home. So, example, people who are real estate agents or people who are book editors or people who are, you know, can do uh, uh, things at home, they did. But the idea that it was going to transit into work at home in a large scale never came about. Now we have like somebody did a big experiment and said, we're going to shut down the schools, we're going to shut down the offices, we're going to shut down the workplaces, and let's see if we can do this work from home. The result of that experiment is that we've discovered that some things, in fact, can work from home in ways that are, if not an improvement, at least easier. People don't have to commute as much. So I would expect that when all is said and done, when we finally can, finally can say COVID is behind us, that there will be a notable increase in the proportion of people who work from home, you know, 5 to 10% more, let's say, which is still notable in terms of the effect on traffic, the effect on real estate values in downtown cities, the planning of corporations, maybe 15%. Maybe there'll be a lot of people who will have three days in the office and two days at home, something like that. We would notice the effects of that, even though most people would still be doing what they did before. Studies coming out over the last few months, which show, for example, that the productivity of firms is generally improved by some flexibility. It doesn't raise the productivity if you allow everybody 100% flexible. You have to have them come into the office sometimes because, or at least this is the hypothesis, people need to interact with their coworkers in order to, you know, to foster creativity and bounce ideas off one another. And those things happen in an easier way when you're stuck in the same space. That, of course, has implications, both for where people choose to live and for transportation. You have fewer people on the road every day. If you have less need to go into the office, so maybe you'll say, you know what, I don't have to live within 20 kilometers. I can live within 60 kilometers because I'm only going in a few times a week. So I think COVID is actually going to facilitate some very, very positive changes in the lives of people and certainly in terms of having a healthier work-family balance or work-home balance than they were able to before COVID. You know, the other thing to bear in mind here is that in Israel, people work more hours per week than in in most countries. So if this can reduce the amount of time they spend commuting, given the number of hours they already work, then that's, that's a good period, I think. As we look at the effects of COVID across the population, we can see that not everyone was affected in the same way. What effect, if any, did COVID have on the vulnerable populations? There are certainly vulnerable populations, let's say of elderly who live alone, who depended to go to church every Sunday, or who depended on regular visits from grandchildren who missed those. And the COVID experience, the shutdown experience meant uh, much more uh, feelings of loneliness. I think for the wider population, it's been hard to find. One of the surprising things in the U.S. data so far is that the suicide rate has not gone up in the United States. In fact, if anything, it's dropped during COVID. So we may have a lot of surprises out there about what the effect of COVID was. The dust is not yet settled, so we really can't see the contours of the conditions right now. 
Alex also noticed that the people who suffered the most, at least during the first wave of COVID-19, were the weaker populations who might not have gotten the state support they needed. The impact in the early days was much more concentrated among the less educated in those people who were working in jobs which they couldn't do at home. They were the ones who were sent home, unpaid leave. The people who owned small businesses suddenly had no physical customers, they were closed. Those guys were hit hard. The people who weren't hit hard were the people who were working in the sorts of occupations where they just, you know, take the laptop home and they continue. The elderly who live alone Manual workers and self-employed are among those who experienced the negative effects of the COVID-19 outbreak. Some say that these effects resulted in a loneliness epidemic and that the technological boost caused by COVID is making it worse. What is your view on that? Well, I've written a bit about that subject in the last few years. It's been a very top popular theme in the United States in the last few years, even before COVID. I have to stress that even before COVID, that somehow there has been this large increase in loneliness. One of the things, striking things is there was a similar wave of concern in the 1970s. There was a similar wave of concern in the 1950s. And one of the popular books at that time was the book called The Lonely Crowd. And it was a very widespread concern in the United States in the 1900s, 1900s, about isolation and loneliness on, in rural America. Uh, so this is a chronic, repeated theme, probably in the West, but certainly in the United States. As to what's been happening in the last 20, 30, 40 years in the United States, it's very hard to find any evidence of a long-term trend in loneliness. I'm perfectly willing to grant to the psychologists who've been writing about this that people who are very lonely you know, are suffering from it. The loneliness can be the result of other problems they have. Loneliness can be the contribute to other problems they have. But it's really hard to see that there's been a long-term trend. Now, as to COVID, well, the first thing I would say is it's really too early for anybody to make any uh, conclusions about COVID. We're really still in it. There are research projects out there that I'm aware of that are getting initially some partial results. I would not want to be sworn to this because we'll see how the research plays out. But my immediate take on this is that there are certainly vulnerable populations. So loneliness epidemic, I'm not sure. And again, I think that's going to vary between places, um, in part based on people's expectations of what it means to be alone. It's clear that the Western model of family structure and of residence patterns is more isolating than the patterns you find in, you know, in the Middle East or elsewhere at least in terms of physical co-presence. I mean, living in the same house as somebody. But that's not always a bad thing, right? There are many, many great things about being able to find some space to be by yourself. And when you're alone, it's not always the same as loneliness. So it does stand to reason, however, that if people expect not to be alone and they don't want to be alone, and then suddenly they're forced to be, it's going to trigger some mental health issues. And we now have solid empirical evidence that COVID did cause significant increases in depression and anxiety. So if we look at the more extreme markers of loneliness, um, suicide, let's say, so we don't see signs of suicide um, increases yet. But I say yet because the empirical literature on suicide going back to the late 19th century is that in times of war, in times of extreme stress, you don't see signs of increased suicide. It, the aftershock. it happens afterwards. During, during the event, because there's more social solidarity, etc., etc., people are, you know, there's an outpouring of volunteerism, people are pulling together. 
those things in and of themselves help people to find more meaning and they feel less inclined to suicide. This was the case with Daniel Cantor, who along with two of her friends started an initiative called Culture of Solidarity, aiming to help people in need at the beginning of the epidemic in Israel. Within a short period of time, Culture of Solidarity became one of the largest volunteer groups engaged in various activities focused on helping those in need, including providing food boxes, hot meals, house renovations, and phone calls, and even helping to bring people who have lost their jobs during COVID back into the working force. Recently, the initiative received a major donation and opened a community center called House of Solidarity that hosts different educational events. This is Danielle. My name is Danielle Cantor. I'm 28 years old and living in Tel Aviv. I started Culture of Solidarity uh, with Alma Beck and Leatonic and an entire community. And before COVID, I was working in uh, the restaurant industry as well as documenting food cultures, uh, writing about food justice, studying about food sobriety. So, Danielle, please tell us, how did it all start? Actually, it's a funny story. Two weeks before COVID got to Israel, when COVID was just kind of like memes you saw on the internet, this girl that I didn't know reached out to me and was like, hey, I heard you deal with like food culture and food justice and food sobriety. Um, I thought maybe we could do a project that like rescues food that is going to be thrown away and then we can redistribute it to vulnerable communities. And I was like, that sounds awesome. And then all of a sudden, all the restaurants shut down. And we were like, all right, this might be a good time to mobilize. And we started with like a post on Facebook, turning to restaurants for their surplus food. And we, we asked like, if you want to throw away your food, give it to us and we'll find someone that needs it. Basically thinking that it would be, you know, like I look at that post on Facebook and it's hilarious. It's so <laughs> innocent. Like we had no idea what it would blow up into. Um, but that's how it started. And then you ended up with food? You didn't expect it? Yeah, we didn't expect that like every restaurant, we had hundreds of restaurants turning to us being like, hey, come take all of our food. We're closing. And we're just like, who needs all this food? And then we realized when we started turning to different uh, organizations and different initiatives, we realized that the need was much bigger than we could ever imagine. And it had nothing to do with COVID. It was way before COVID. For the past two years, Culture of Solidarity has distributed over 67,000 food packages and 47,000 hot meals. They have branched out and repaired 30 different homes and brought 120 unemployed individuals back into the workforce. They have volunteers in 54 different cities. So you started with food, but you branched out to other things yeah, as well. Exactly. So we started with food dry food. And then from there, we started doing hot food because we realized that single mothers are stuck at home um, with their kids and don't have time to cook. And seniors, their caretakers can't come and serve them and help them because of COVID. And um, different community members with mental illness uh, were also not receiving their food that they were supposed to be receiving from different organizations. So we realized that we should also do an initiative of hot food. We actually started while um, doing phone calls. The first community that we, our hearts were like, oh, what's up with these people? We're seniors, elderly, like, oh, they can't leave their house. They're like at risk. They're the most, they need to stay inside. And what could a day, a week, a month look like being so lonely? 
So we started pairing different activists and volunteers to different seniors that needed phone calls, that wanted phone calls, that wanted to talk and uh, needed just a nice, uh, friendly ear during this time that they couldn't leave the house, whether it was someone to go get them groceries or take their dog out for a walk, help them with uh, their documents, help them work a computer, like all these different things. How do you explain the success of Culture of Solidarity? Community. That's the answer. It's just people coming and wanting to to join and wanting to take part and wanting to do something that isn't just about them and about their world and about their day-to-day. I really believe that the only reason that we are where we are today is because of the community and people that have joined in. From the beginning, for months, we didn't have a name. We didn't have an Instagram. We didn't have... Um, we're still not a written uh, NGO or anything. Like We're a collective of people who want to do good. And that's why we're, you know, today we're called Culture of Solidarity because that is what we encourage. We encourage a culture of solidarity within the community. We encourage people to take responsibility for the community. What do you think Israeli society will look like post-COVID-19? Will life return to normal? I don't know how it will look like after. Um, I don't know if there will be an after, you know, we're in a new era. You know, people forget really easily about everything. If we saw during COVID people out protesting or during the last wave of violence in May, um, you know, people go back to their day-to-day routine and kind of forget. I hope that COVID kind of gave people an awakening. It gave me an awakening. The pandemic definitely put a spotlight on problems. Um, but we need to continue, you know, this groundwork and continue mobilizing. A better future all depends on us, on the people. We have the power to change our present and our future. And uh, I really hope people go into this new era post-COVID with that in mind, that we can live our comfortable lives, but we can also choose to open our eyes to find beauty in the connections with different communities and different cultures. Um, because it's definitely a win-win, and it always has been. Data Point. Stories behind the scenes of the Israeli economy. Data Point. A podcast by the Taub Center. Thank you to Daniel Cantor, Professor Alex Weinreb, and Professor Claude Fisher. This episode was produced by Ella Itkin and Lior Morag. Editing and sound by Omer Senesh, me, and the rest of the team at Podcastico. Special thanks to Professor Avi Weiss, Susie Pat Benvenisti, and Anat Sela Koren. And a huge thank you to our sponsor, the Herbert and Nels Singer Foundation, for making this episode possible as part of the Taub Center's annual Herbert M. Singer International Policy Conference, this year focusing on Distance by Design, Opportunities and Implications for Israel. To learn more about the conference and listen to recordings of the conference content, please visit our website at taubcenter.org.il. To stay updated on all things Taub Center, sign up for our monthly newsletter through our websites and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you're interested in giving us feedback or sponsoring future episodes of this podcast, be in touch at podcast at taubcenter.org.il. I'm Ido Kainan.